Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. There we go. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be, jump on with me today. Um, you know, by the way, lo- I love that office, man. Look, I can't tell what all those awards are going on in the back right there, but it looks like you've done something right for somebody along the way, right? <laughs> I hope so. Actually, those are all degrees. Would you believe it? Oh, degree. <laughs> and the best one is actually on the other side of that door. So uh, <laughs> believe it or not, those are all degrees. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You know, look, so I appreciate you taking the opportunity to want to hop on our podcast and, and talk a little bit about what we're doing and, and, and kind of learn, you know, more about your business. But, you know, it's, um, it's a trying time out there and in, in the world and everybody's looking for, you know, the best in class solutions to solve their problems. Um, I think too many times, you know, that people are attracted to maybe a big brand and not realizing that sometimes in the big brand, you're getting a function of quantity, but you may be lacking on the quality side of the ledger. And, um, you know, I, I know that's reflective, I feel like in my practice, and I would, you know, knowing what I know about your practice today, I would agree that you guys probably believe that that same theme. But, you know, thanks for coming on. Let's just talk a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing in business today, what's happening, you know, in the, with the climate, um, what are the concerns that, you, that your clients are currently having? And, you know, let's talk about some of the good and the bad that you're seeing out there right now, because I think there's a lot of tax legislation that's hanging over everybody's head. Um, um, the government's trying to get some stuff signed off on, but it's just not working the way that they anticipated it doesn't look like. So um, talk about a little bit about who you are and what you do. Let's start there. Absolutely. You know, as, as Matt's known, uh, I mean, you've known me for a long time and uh, I'm an attorney. I'm a CPA. I'm also a real estate broker and a title insurance agent. And our focus of our practice, I've, I've been in practice uh, alongside my father for 24 years. Uh, we also have uh, another senior CPA that's practiced about that long with us. Her name is Lacey Henson, and, and she's been with us as well. We have a whole host staff of other attorneys and accountants here uh, at our corporate headquarters in our offices here in Illinois. We work all over the country. Uh, our practice is merger and acquisition of privately held companies across the United States. In addition to that, we help with succession planning of companies and just strategic planning of companies. Even as I, as I sit here today, I've probably got five or six calls, and there's there's a whole wealth of, of different uh, businesses that we'll be dealing with today, whether we're selling them. I've got a, I've got a phone call with a $5 million distributor in Florida this afternoon. We're dealing with, uh, they're actually a public corporation. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to sell them. We've got some strategic plans for some landscaping companies to deal with this afternoon as well. So that's the type of work that we do. We get involved in businesses that are looking to sell their company, that are looking to transfer their company that are looking to create a way to transfer it to the next generation, maybe to have it bought by a key employee. And then, of course, the bottom line to all that is for all these owners, what are my taxes going to be? How can you minimize that tax impact to me? What does the cash flow look like on the deal? Uh, what am I going to walk away with? What am I really going to walk away with? And then, then you get into some other ancillary issues that we deal with. And it's, um, you know, what are the legal liabilities? What are my legal, what's my legal exposure after the closing? What are the shareholders of the business uh, going to be liable for? A lot of issues that I'm seeing, right? It's so funny how 
our country ebbs and flows with its laws and its tax laws and its impact on valuing companies, praising companies, selling companies. And then, you know, what do we do after we've sold our company? Guys like you come in and, you know, where are we going to put the funds? Where are we going to defer the gains? What are we going to do with all this? Right now, we're sitting on an interesting time because the end of the year was a flurry. 2021 was the biggest year I've ever seen for businesses across the country. Yes, I know we still had some that were hurting, but honestly, the majority that I've seen had phenomenal years. The merger and acquisition market is the hottest it's ever been. We thought it would slow down. It's not slowing down. You know why? Now we have interest rate pressure. Now we have the government coming in and saying, the Fed coming in and saying, we are going to raise rates. We are going to catch up quickly. Those are scary words for a lot of us business owners. And I'll tell you what, I mean, the last two weeks has been a flurry of activity because now I've got a whole group of businesses trying to close, get the loan conditions met so that their interest rate doesn't increase or else the deal becomes unaffordable to their financing package they put together. So, I mean, this is just unbelievable what's happening all of a sudden. So if you're, you know, if you've got, if you're out there and you're listening and you're, you're owning a company and you're sitting there and saying, man, I've been thinking about this or I've got, I've got someone interested in selling or you know, buying the company. Let me tell you, there's going to be an impact here this year. We're going to see, you know, we could see a little slowdown if these interest rates jump that much. So buyers are hot right now. Again, now we may get past these interest rate increases and then all of a sudden have another benefit that's going to reignite the industry again. So, but that's really, honestly, the hottest thing, of course, that's on uh, a lot of people's minds. When you get more into the crux of the deals and the structures of the transactions, I'm really, really seeing a lot of companies and a lot of you know a lot of companies and businesses struggle with the internal workings of the deal. And you, you look at that and you say it's a. I'll give an example of working capital structures. Working capital structures become so difficult for owners to negotiate in the sale of their business. There's a major tax impact to those. A lot of owners don't even think about it. They're like, oh, I'm going to sell my company for a million, 10 million, 30 million, 50 million, whatever it may be. I'm not worried about the working capital calculation. I don't even understand it and I'm not going to worry about it. And it becomes such a big part of the negotiation when the 65 page purchase agreement is put in front of them. So that's really been one of our, again, probably the three main things I would say right now is you've got interest rate increased pressures. Then you've got deal structure deals that you've got working capital issues. And then one of the things that we've been doing for years is our tax minimization analysis, cash flow, whatever you want to call it on a deal, where we work with the owners from day one on how much are they going to walk away with. I am looking at federal, state, local taxes. I am looking at when the deal is done, what are we doing with the money in the company? Are we working with you and one of, and one of your your products and one of your investments and are we deferring gain? Are we, what are we doing? Or are we liquidating the distribution out of the business? And what does that liquidating distribution have for an effect on the tax ramifications to the business? So we've got all these, and that's, that's always probably one of the biggest pieces, but right now I'd say that's our, that's our third issue that we're dealing with, with these owners. And as a deal ebbs and flows, that tax analysis changes. And that's, what's nice, you know, about being, being an attorney and being a CPA, holding both of those licenses, as does my father. And we do hope we have others in our office that achieve that uh, as they grow with us. But that's what sets us apart when we get involved in a transaction. 
You're talking to the attorney and the CPA on the transaction at the same time. It makes things extremely efficient in our transactions. Yo, just yesterday, in fact, I owe him an email this morning. I'm working with a company I've worked with for probably almost 24 years. Uh, one of the first companies my father ever let me travel with him to. And, and I sat down with the husband and wife back then and they're selling their business. And they got the letter of intent and we marked it up and we showed them their tax analysis. And we then, then we wanted to revise their valuation. So there we are marking up a letter of intent, revising a tax analysis to show them what they're going to walk away with, with their counter offer. And then on top of that, revising the valuation to make sure the offer is within the realm of the valuation. We're doing all three pieces all in one phone call. So I don't probably need to toot my horn any, any farther. It's just, that's the nice thing about what we do. And that's why it's an enjoyable work for us. It, yeah, we get busy and we get stressful, but it can be enjoyable. No, no, no. Thank good stuff. Thanks for sharing. No, I appreciate that. And you know, look, that's, that's what we're looking for here. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I met your dad. Or I heard your dad speak at a conference 15 years ago. And that was how you guys got kind of on my radar that so far back. You know, I, I can remember where it was. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina, honestly. Like, so um, when I heard him speak and I think I ended up on your email list, which was a, a sporadic distribution of email at the time, but it's become more consistent over the years as that's become a more, you know, uh, acceptable, I guess, form of distribution of staying in front of your customers, right? Absolutely. But, um, as, as, I, as we talked in our pre-meeting conversation, you know, I have a daughter that is possibly two daughters that are thinking about going to law school. One of them is a senior in college right now. So she's prepping for the LSAT exam. And I can, I just, as you said that, what went through my mind is in 20 years, is Marissa going to be sitting here listening <laughs> to somebody that met me <laughs> in Las Vegas somewhere and I'd be smiling from up in heaven if that's going to be the case. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe true, maybe true, right? So um, it's interesting. In the past year, I actually added a couple, a few more letters to the end of my name. I got another designation, and it was in M and A specifically. There were eighty-five people in my class. It was done as a Zoom, like a master's class on a Zoom. It was all attorneys and CPAs. I was the only non-attorney and non-CPA on the, in the class, right? <laughs> So the funny part that you mentioned just a second ago was how a CPA, an attorney, will look at the exact same information through a different lens. That class, when we would do case studies, no one could agree on what they were looking at or what they were seeing because they were all looking at it through a different prism. And so to your point, having those different lenses and being able to see it from a couple of different perspectives, you know, I think is kind of unique to you guys where those other people need to be collaborating with other people that are trained the way so that they can share that information back and forth. And I saw that firsthand, um, you know, how they're allocating uh, all the assets in a sale and how they break it down and how you think you can move one piece to the other piece to get a little bit of tax efficiency out of it per se. Right. So uh, you got to witness that firsthand. It was kind of interesting. And I'm not surprised. I imagine you in that class were probably one of the sharpest guys in there. You definitely, <laughs> you definitely hold your weight in our conversation. I mean, you, you have a lot more knowledge in a lot of areas that I've ever known anyone to have. When I first, <laughs> um, I remember I went back upstairs and, uh, with my wife and I said, that guy knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. And, <laughs> you know, we, we, we rarely meet people in our industry that have your depth of knowledge. And uh, you taught me a lot of things as well. So 
Well, I appreciate that. And honestly, that's one of the hardest things that I've had to overcome is that lack of who I am and how do I possibly know this stuff? That's kind of, I blindside almost everybody with that. But, you know, it's, uh, you just don't know until you know, because I look somewhat, I look like a finance person, but uh, I have my tentacles out in a few different things. So I I appreciate you saying that. That kind of validates a lot of the hard work that I put in there. So I appreciate that. Um, Let me go back and ask a question you know, you said the three primary issues right now that you're talking about, one of them being interest rates. And if you don't want to have an opinion on this, that's okay. But do you have a philosophical opinion on where you think interest rates will go? And let me preface that by saying, you know, the government and politicians and the Fed say a lot of things for headlines, but then like current tax bill, right, that they're trying to pass. There was a lot of things said that ultimately haven't come to fruition. Do you think it's just a, a headline optics type, com, you know, piece that was thrown out there? Or do you really think it's something that from an interest rate perspective, they can they can move in a meaningful way? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, because I'll tell you what, whenever anybody asks me a question, whether it's in a deal or whether it's in an interview or whether it's in a lecture that I may be giving, you know, I try to draw on the experience that I've had and what do I remember and what did we see and historically, you know, in the 24 years that now, yeah, I grew up in the 80s, but I wasn't exposed to those higher interest rates uh, other than the late 90s, we were still kind of up there. But historically speaking, if we would have had inflation like we have, and we would have had economic growth like we've had recently, we would have had some small interest rate increases already. The pressure from the the pandemic is what I believe held them off from those increases. They did not want to put that pressure on the economy, not knowing if Tomorrow, the pandemic would explode again, kind of like it is, but we would shut down. We wouldn't shut down. We had all these other governmental economic aid programs out there. Uh, Just look at the EIDL $2 million loan. I helped a number of customers over the last three or four months get that loan. That loan is out of this world. We can talk about that in a few minutes if you want to, but that's historically speaking, we would have had some small quarter point raises. I mean, I'll get down to the the brass numbers of it. So we didn't. So I do believe they are behind the game. I am a believer, you know, I I own not just our law firm and our accounting firm. I own a pretty good sized real estate investment company that my father started many years ago. Whenever I buy an investment property and I've got tenants paying rents, whatever it may be, apartments, commercial buildings, whatever it may be, I don't just go in there and raise the rents right to market value. I'm going to lose the tenants. I'm going to get a bad name. There's a lot of business economics for that decision. The Fed's got to look at this the same way. It can't go in there and say, boom, 1%. We could have a significant issue if they do that. We've got the pandemic still hurting our healthcare systems and other systems across the country. Regardless of what you believe politically, we know that it's it's impacting. We've got supply chain issues. It's a car lot across the street from me. They got 10 cars in the lot. Yes, they're doing better because they only have 10 cars in the lot and they're selling them for a higher dollar value. Trust me, they're a client. They're doing better, but, <laughs> but we need the supply chain back. That is not American economics. We need the supply chain back to stabilize not just that industry, industries as a whole across the country. My Lord, I couldn't even buy hash browns at the store in Florida. Hash browns are gone. Who would have thought hash browns are sold out? We just got back to Illinois. I'm here in Illinois for a week to work with my crab. You know what we found in our freezer? A bag of hash browns. 
That's my retirement fund right there right now. <laughs> that's that's all I got to say. I mean, philosophically, I think historically, interest rates should have gone up a little bit. Should they have had some kind of better monetary policy? Probably, probably going to kick themselves when they realize, yeah, we should have gone ahead. We could have put a little pressure on the market, but look, you know, the American economy is surviving. It can take it. It can take it. Sure, sure. Fair. And I kind of agree with you uh, on that from an interest rate perspective. But once again, I think they can only push it so far. So I don't, you know, we've got the lowest cost of capital we've ever had access. There's a lot of cheap money out there. So if you know, if you've got an efficient way to be able to deploy a cheap cost of capital, it's a good time. right? (laughs) It's, It's a good time. So one of the other things that you mentioned before is, you know, let's lean back into that deal structure a little bit. You said that's one of the biggest things that that clients are coming up with. So what are some, you know, what are some of the opportunities in a deal structure or what are some of the um, perceived like um, roadblocks in deal structure when you come to it, things clients believe that aren't true or things clients don't believe, you know, that aren't true, that are true, right? That create an opportunity for them when they're going through that process. So deal structure, when they, when we talk about deal structure, really what we're looking at is, and, and we get down to the tax aspects of it is, how are we going to structure the transaction from your balance sheet with your company to minimize that tax liability? What is the value of your balance sheet? What's on there? Buyers and sellers are adverse. And to you know, bring it down to, to simple mathematics, you know, a seller wants to say, look, I'm going to sell you my balance sheet. I'm selling you the assets that are on there because I'm not going to have to pay much in tax if I sell you what's on my balance sheet. We're going to allocate the rest to the goodwill of the business, maybe to the goodwill of the owners. That's a whole other topic for another day. But we're going to try to sell the, we're going to try to structure the deal to sell the company at the book value on the balance sheet. That's the pitfall for the buyer. A buyer, a savvy buyer, and, and we see more and more in the market these days because, again, the working capital calculations are now in almost every transaction, no matter the size. But the buyer comes in and says, and we, we are involved in a large one right now. $50 million plus one that, and don't get me wrong. I don't want to get the audience always thinking, oh, he only does large deals. No, we're close to $40,000 tanning salon that we helped out with to a, a friend of ours and a, and a business uh, person in our local community. So it doesn't really, the deal size doesn't matter. The balance sheets are balance sheets and income statements are income statements. But a buyer wants to come in and mark those assets up to fair market value. So it gets better write-offs. So structuring the difference between those is where the structure of the deal really comes into play. You've also got, and a lot of owners don't understand that. They're like, well, again, same example from the older couple that I'm working with. They wrote down their inventory over the years. So now the buyer's going to come in and want to put the inventory on the books at what the inventory is valued at. What Mm -hmm. did they purchase it for? What's its true value? I want to be able to have that on my books so that that's my cost of goods sold. So I don't have to pay excess gain when I go and sell that inventory after the deal's over. Well, if you do that to the seller, now the seller has more tax implications at closing. So now we've got to look at that in terms of where are we going to put this? You can't give it all to one party and all of it to the other party. We've got to find that middle ground or where can we negotiate? Give you another example. We're working on the one right now. It's about a $10 million transaction in Florida. It's a distributor. No, I'm sorry. It's $4.5 million. $4.5 million distributor in Florida. And the buyer has come in and said, look, we cannot meet the working capital. We cannot, we, we've got to meet the target. The target is a certain number. If you go above the target at closing, I can't give you any more money. 
I don't have authority to give you any more money. So what can we do to meet the target? Well, this company in particular happens to pay its payables very quickly. When the bill comes in, the bill is paid. You don't have to do that. If it's got a net 30 or a net 60, we can run those payables to the net 30, close the deal, let the buyer assume those payables. That has brought our ending target, our ending closing working capital down closer to the target. That's structure. The buyer doesn't owe us any more money. Now the buyer has to pay those payables off, but the buyer has the receivables now, doesn't have to draw it from his loan to make those payables. And we're going to give the buyer, this this structure in particular, always was giving the buyer a little bit of cash at the closing. So now the lender says, okay, you're going to hit the target. We're not going to have to lend you any more money. We know what you're doing. You're doing it within a gap policy. So you're not doing anything outside of gap. We're good to go. That's deal structure. And we do it to where I always tell my clients, we do it to where I can defend it. Am I going to be aggressive? Yes. I am an attorney. I am a CPA. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to read case law. We're going to read treasury regulations, but we're going to structure the deal to where we can defend it. Give you one more example. I had a client call me the other day. She's actually an attorney. Her family owns a company and she's worked for her family company for many, many years. She heard one of our CLE programs as happens often. And the company hired us to be there basically to be their corporate counsel. She says to me, Roman, we put a machine in, in December. You're talking about a two, $3 million machine. She goes, it's in the plant. It's bolted down. It's this, it's that it's ready for use, except we don't have the wiring to it because of this issue or that issue. She's like, do you think we can deduct that in 20? Can we put that as placed in service in 2021? If you just go and you read the regulation, you're going to say to yourself, no, that's not placed in service. But we did some case research. We found more than one case. Now, we found a couple of cases across several different jurisdictions. So then you got to find out, okay, which jurisdiction do you think we could defend if we tell her deduct it? Sure enough, I just what I did with her since she's a fellow lawyer, I gave her that case analysis and I said, yeah, you know what? I would do it. I wouldn't have a problem doing it and I wouldn't have a problem defending it. You've actually done more in some of the cases that were allowed to deduct it in front of the tax court. Structure, we did it. She put it on the books and she put it as placed in service, even though it's not technically hooked up yet. But boy, was it close and it was way beyond the way beyond some of the other cases that even allowed it. So that's what we talk about with structure. It's not just always what's in that document, what's on the balance sheet, what's going on in the warehouse, what's going on in the courtroom. And we put all those together. Sure. Good examples. Really good examples. You made a statement. You said um, that uh, buyers and sellers are adverse. And I would tell you, you know, I was looking at a deal with somebody the other day and I would argue that um, sellers and sell side brokers are adverse. And what I mean by that is I saw a broker the other day um, have a business they were looking to sell. It qualified for SBA financing at a certain level, and he had priced it significantly higher than it would qualify from a financing perspective. And, you know, you could tell that he had made a promise to the seller that I can get this price, right? That was way higher than financing. 
I'm not sure the seller actually believed that or had the confidence in it, but the seller is ready to move on and make a transaction. So from a valuation standpoint in a fact pattern like that, are you seeing stuff like that, overpriced assets that won't qualify for financing? And is that an issue? How do you help those people get across the finish line? Yeah, you know, um, over the years, back and forth, that becomes issues as we get such strong markets. And this is a really strong market for for M&A activity. So you are seeing that issue of this is where the valuation is, but this is where I think the sale can be made at because of where the market is. And, you know, education, I think, is the key there sometimes to educate the seller. And, and, you know, when I do and everybody, you know, there's a lot of people that do valuational work out there. When I do evaluation, it's it's more of an accounting valuation. It's done with the, with the basic methods of accounting that we're kind of guided with in IRS regulations and whatnot and revenue rulings. So it's a little bit different. We do look at the market. The market is one of our methods, but that's what I kind of do in that situation, Matt. I would walk in with them really and show the seller, show the seller side broker, hey, this is really the, the calculated method of value. Now, if I'm still above what the lending capability is, then I'm going to have conversations with the lender and see what can be, and again, see what can be done, what can be structured. How can we prove that there's more value there within the company? Because it does happen. And that, that may happen in this situation that I'm in right now, because it's a smaller deal. It's a one and a half million dollar deal, but the offer came in under a million. And now my client is countering with a million and a half. Still though, they are well under, and that's why we had to update the valuation. Even though the counter is so much higher it's a small deal, right? Almost like a main street deal. Even though the counter was so much higher than the original offer, we know he's below his valuation that we did three years ago. We've got to update the valuation. If it's been brought down, how far down was it brought? Is he under where he is now? And start to prove to the parties, to the buying offer to say, hey, we know you might have this lending limit. We got to show you why you're not going to be there, why we're going to be at, at Y instead of X with the value. So I, I do, I really go back to my valuations when, when I have to have that conversation, that's really where I start with it. It's tough. And, and you're right. You know, when you're in a market like this, multiples can be very high. And let me, let me kind of bend that issue too, because this has happened very recently where sellers and their advisors need to be careful because as you've said, seller brokers, seller side brokers, there's a different interest there and your advisors, your financial planners, your M&A guys, whoever it may be, as opposed to necessarily the seller side broker, there's an incentive there for them to sell the company. And we all know that. And you've got to make sure that your clients are picking, you know, we need advisors, we need brokers. I, I don't broker businesses. So we need that across the country, but you've got to make sure that they're out there for the best interest of the client, because if they're only out there, and they're seeing that commission, time and things get tough in the deal. They just want documents signed. You got to make sure your advisors that are on your team are strong enough to stand up and say, wait a minute. No, it's not good for the client. Hold on. We're going to get the deal done, but stop and think, what do we got to do? How can we get this done where it's in the best interest of the client? Because I'm seeing that a lot lately where the attorneys are just a rubber stamp on a document because the broke, seller side broker brought them in. And they want, they just want to get the deal done. Be careful. Everyone's got to be careful out there. 
Yeah. Look, all professionals are not created equal, right? Um, I tell that people that all the time. I said, I don't care what profession somebody decided to put themselves in, whether they're attorney, a CPA, a business broker, you know, that's just a new game. There's people that are great at that game and people that are terrible at that game. So, you know, you got to find, you know, just because they have that label around them doesn't necessarily make them good at the game they decided to play. You, you need, you still need to find quality out there. Um, Great. Thanks for sharing. So I wanted to go back to one of the things, so the three things that you mentioned before that I really wanted you to drive in on. We talked about interest rates. We talked about deal structure and you wanted to talk about your tax minimization cash flow analysis. Kind of walk me through what that looks like a little bit for your clients and what the expectations are. I love that thing, man. My dad started doing that years ago and I would bring it to conventions as like a, a little bound uh, six page document and, and we would show clients different things. But we call it our tax minimization analysis. We've called it that for a long time. What that is, is a, a waterfall of the transaction to the seller. Now, in deals, we talk about waterfalls. But a lot of times in deals, when a client will see a waterfall, it's how the money's coming in and how the money's going out. It's not necessarily the seller's, how, the sell, how it's flowing to the seller through their balance sheet. That's really what it is. So if it's a $10 million deal and you've got, you start at the top. And this is exactly what it's, it's down to the penny. It's a $10 million deal. Okay, you've got maybe a broker commission minus their commission. You've got a working capital adjustment. Is it plus or minus? We're going to be inserting that right away. So what does the working capital adjustment look like at the date that you started when you valued the business? I don't care if we're three, four months away from selling it. What's the working capital adjustment if I look at a trailing 12-month average? Is it up? Is it down? Are you going to get money at closing or is money going to be taken away? What are your lawyer fees going to be? Your accountant fees going to be? We'll estimate them on there for you. It's an expense in the sale. You're not going to pay tax on it. Let's put it on there. Don't worry about the sticker shop. We need it on there because you're not paying taxes on that money. You're saving some money. What about the assumed liabilities? In most deals, current liabilities, the payables, the accounts payables are being assumed. That is taxable to the seller. That has to go up top. You have to add that to the purchase price you're not getting the money. It's forgiveness of debt. It is taxable to the seller. It's got to go on top so that we can minimize its impact. So now we know what our, what our real true net selling price is. Now we make our allocation to the best benefit. In the beginning, we make our allocation to the best benefit of the seller. Now, the IRS regulation says, you know, you got to have an arm's length. Or, you know, if it's an arm's length transaction, you got to allocate to fair market value. The party's got to agree on it. Be aware, I don't think a lot of people know this, the parties don't have to agree on the allocation of the assets. The parties could file different allocations on IRS Form 8594. I say this in my lectures across the country, and the brokers and the owners look at me and are like, what? But in reality, that's the truth. What happens if they file a different allocation is you could get a letter audit, and the IRS would come in and de determine, excuse me, the IRS would come in and determine what is fair market value. And then you got a problem on you. So you got to be careful, but you got to allocate to those assets. Now you know, okay, do we have goodwill? Do we have company goodwill? Do we have called enterprise goodwill? Do we have personal goodwill? What are we using? There's a good impact to that. Now we know our tax implications at the company level and potentially at the personal level. So we put the tax in there. Are you an S? Are you a C? Are you an LLC? 
Are you selling assets? Are you selling stock? Is it a 338? Is it not? Is it a 1202? Is it not? What are we doing? Are we using enterprise zones, funds? What are, are we using 1031s? We put all that in there. You're getting a good net now at the bottom and you're seeing your taxes. We're going to flow that over now to another column and we're going to start to show, okay, is there a promissory note? Is there a consulting agreement? Is there a non-compete agreement that we're allocating to? What's the tax ramification there? And what are we doing now? There's money left in the company. How are we getting it out of the company? Is there going to be a distribution from the company? If it's an S-Corp, is there AAA available? Your retained earnings, essentially. If it's a C-Corp, what's your basis? And same thing with your S-Corp. What's your shareholder basis? Do you have basis to remove those funds tax-free or do you have to use something else to, to use those? Now, okay, now we're down to the bottom and we're done. We're saying, okay, we're acting like we shut the company down. Even though we don't like to shut companies down, we want to leave them open, expense amounts out as the years go by. There's still always issues. I just closed a $22 million deal over on the East Coast of Florida. We get an email from the seller's accountant last week saying, Roman, we're going to have about $500,000 in expenses in 2022. I don't know that we're going to have, how are we going to get that out of the company? Okay. Structure. That should have, they should have said something to me when I was building the TMA and I would have put that column on there. All right. Now you have $500,000 of expenses. You've got some choices. We excluded two accounts receivables from the deal. When we collect that accounts receivable, we could post it over there. If it was still on our books, we could post the income over there. We could remove those expenses. And now we've eliminated, we, we've used those expenses. We found a better way because you can take those expenses right now and carry them back for five years. So they're taking that $500,000 loss and we're going to carry it back over the last two years because they had profit those last two years. And we're going to wipe out that profit and get them a tax refund. Simple answers, but it was struck. It was, it was the TMA structure. We could have showed them that we could have showed that final piece there, but that's what that is. I love it. We started from day one, from the minute we think we know the value of the business, or if a broker or advisor calls me and says, Roman, we're going to sell it. We got an offer on the table for 5.6 million. Okay. I don't need to value the company, but I can go ahead and start working on that TMA. That TMA then gives me what? It gives me the structure I want in the deal. And that's where I start negotiating from. A lot of times we will negotiate to a more appropriate fair market value to those assets, which has a tax impact. And it's nice. The seller knows. Yep, I had to go up with my taxes, but maybe he gave me more money. We had a deal where uh, about maybe three, four years ago, the it was an equity buyer actually for a janitorial company out in California. They did not want to use personal goodwill. They did not believe the concept. They didn't know the concept at all, which blew my mind because the attorney was a the attorney was a professor at a university in M and A. Didn't know about personal goodwill. Buying a nine million dollar company. Well, we negotiated and because they wouldn't do it, they threw a million dollars onto the deal because of the tax implications. So they throw a million dollars onto the deal because of the tax implications of not using personal goodwill. Never forget it. And then my client, we went through with it. We closed the deal. So 
Crazy. Hey, I heard you mention, uh, so you were talking about NOL carrybacks in there. I was hearing a lot about that. I think that's what you were talking about. I heard a lot about that a couple of years ago. I hadn't heard as much about it right now. Is that still something in 2022 and going forward right now that we can, that, that we can execute on, that we can take advantage of? Yeah, I'd have to look at the 2022 law, but with one of the, with one of the coronavirus um, legislations that came out, they renewed the five-year look back on NOLs that had been taken away and it's back for right now. Now we'd have to look to see it. I just looked at the 2021 tax year. No, that is the 2022 tax year. We just checked it. That's right. So for 2022, you can still carry back for five years now. That will expire. Um, That may expire at the end of 2022. They only extended it for a certain period of time and they only did it because of the pandemic to help corporations out to use that loss carryback for five years. So, and the question that came up and I've only researched this briefly, the question that came up was I took a five-year carryback three years ago. Is there a rule on how often I can do it? I read the instructions. I've not gone any deeper than the NOL instructions at this point. And like I said, see, we'll have to read the revenue rulings and then potentially some court cases uh, but for right now, we don't think there is a limit on how often you can use the five-year carryback. So if I have a loss in 2021 and I carried back and I have a loss in 2022, can I carry back? And I think you can. I don't think there's a problem with that. Uh, don't necessarily stick me to that just yet. If someone needed that answer, we're going to have to finish that research. But for right now, we did tell our client, yes, we believe he can go ahead. That company can go ahead and use that carryback again. Sure. So for anybody that's watching, NOL is net operating loss. Um, and I'll make a, an observation of the, could you carry it back how many times? I guess logically you would go, well, how many losses year over year can a company have and still be around that they can carry it back, right? I mean, hey, good for you if you're durable enough, you can lose money multiple years in a row and still benefit from carrybacks. You've done something right for a long time. I want to know who your accountant is, that's for sure. I'll hire him. (laughs) You've done something good there. So, um, um, so you brought up a point earlier. Um, you said uh, the EIDL loans that you had some stories on or something you wanted to share on that. I wanted to double back, you know, uh, tell us what it is, right? And then tell us, you know, share your experiences with that, if you would. So the EIDL loan in particular is with the SBA. So, and I believe it stands for Economic Injury Disaster Loan. I believe that's the acronym uh, definition of that. And right now, what that loan is, is any business owner listening to me needs to listen in closely. And anyone that even, you may be an M&A advisor listening in, but you may have a side business that you do. And I'll give you that example why I just said that. One of my guys is like, one of my um, property managers is like that. Right now, there is available up to, and I don't sell the loan at all. There's up to a $2 million loan available directly from the SBA. There is no lender involved. It is from the SBA. It is amortized over 30 years. Interest is deferred for two years. You pay no payments for two years. It is a 4% interest rate. It is available to almost any business in the United States. There are some parameters, but almost all of the ones that I have dealt with 
received it. Now they all didn't receive 2 million. It is based on what your gross revenues looked like and what type of business you are and different things. But let me give you an example. Car dealership calls me. Now, originally the loan had been only up to 500,000. This increase to 2 million happened uh, in the third and fourth quarter of last year of 2021. So car dealership owns two dealerships. They were sitting on the $500,000 loan and they got a call. They were eligible for 2 million for each dealership. They walked away with a $4 million loan, no payments for two years, 4% interest amortized over 30 years. And when they renewed the law, when they went to the 2 million, they said you can use it for past, current or future debt. So folks, if you've got loans out there in your business, I don't care if they're 3%, 3.5%, whatever they may be. If you can take that loan, if you're an expansion mode kind of business, you can take that loan, those loans, pay them off with this loan. And most likely in business, most business loans are what? They mature about every five years, usually amortized over seven, 10 or 15 years. And now you've got a 30-year amortized loan at a 4% interest rate. Are you kidding me for a business loan? (laughs) And here's the real kicker. They'll send you, the SBA will send you the note, and they will send you a security agreement. There's no lien on real estate required. They do want to know what's your real estate, what's this, what's that. There's no mortgage that's recorded. It is simply a loan agreement and a security agreement. And it's all done online. You go right to the SBA website. There's an EIDL loan link. I even, I can, I'll share the link with you, Matt, after the the call. I've sent it to probably 20 clients. They've all applied. They've all gotten it. I've got a property manager that works for me. And we own, like I said, we own a pretty good size investment, a real estate investment company. He owns maybe three or four homes on an interstate and he, he uses them on Airbnb. They're licensed, they're registered, he's done great with them. The city's done great with them. I told him, I said, you know what? You're eligible for this. You're in that industry. You were impacted by COVID during during that time. You, you had renters cancel, whatnot. Yeah. Some of the parameters that are in there, which pretty much everybody meets. I think he got awarded $350,000. <laughs> this is a guy that owns like three homes on an interstate and he's renting them on Airbnb. I just got him a $350,000, 30-year loan. What's he going to go do? He's going to go buy more Airbnb houses. He can, yeah. pay off his, he can pay off that path. There's certain things you use it for. But again, the debt payoff is what was, what was really triggering to me. He can take those loans for those three houses, pay them off, and now he's got the equity of those homes to go and expand his business at a really good structured loan. So that's it. I I love it. I absolutely love it. I've had clients all over the country thanking me that we let them know they've invested the money. Uh, And again, you know, you you talk about this whole thing is so circular because we talk about inflation. We talk about interest rates. We talk about the strength of the economy. Those programs, again, whether you politically like them or not, they strengthened the businesses. They, They made us feel safe with what we just went through and what we're going to go through. We've got money to invest. They want you to invest it. That's what the SBA wants. So from sitting here representing owners of companies, I like it. I like it a lot. 
You know, I think that's uh, like you said at the beginning, there's been some some businesses that have really exploded and taken off and done great things during COVID. Right. And then there's been others. And I think um, fortunately for me, my businesses and everything I'm involved in has done extremely well. Right. I've been on the right side of that pendulum. But those are some great safety net programs for the other side. The key is understanding that they're there, who they apply to and knowing how to access them. Right. And I and so. You know, that's a, that's a quality of counsel and the people you work with. Once again, remember the mean, <laughs> you know, look for somebody that's in the upper half of the mean when you're working with a professional. Uh, it makes a difference in the quality of the advice that you're getting. So, hey, we've um, spent a fair amount of time today. You've shared a lot of stuff. So if, you, if the roles were reversed and you were in my shoes, what, what should I have asked you? What do you want to share? What should we know about your business? What should we know about the business environment? You know, um, what did I not ask? What do people need to know about you? What do people need to know about this space? I think you hit it. I think you hit everything in a nutshell. You know, I, I think a lot of people ask me like yourself, like Roman, how do you, and again, whether, whether they work with me or whether they work with someone in the industry, a lot of people always ask me, how do you get involved, Roman? When do you get involved? When do you want to look at something? And I tell everybody the same thing. I've been using this model for a couple of years. You know, you get a client to say, hey, let me see your financials. Let me see your tax returns. I hold them in confidence. I look at them confidentially. Have that conversation with the client. What are we looking at? What's going on? I don't charge for that review. I don't charge for that phone call. I just want to get a good look at what we're looking at. See if I can help them. After that first phone call, yeah. Then I follow it up and I say, hey, here's my contract. Here's what I can do for you. Here's the retainer. Here's the cost to your project. Nine times out of 10, I can flat fee a project within a range. And that's all. That's, that, that's the only question probably that uh, I get asked a lot in, in a lot of different interviews and in different spaces of how do we work with you? And again, I say that and I, I try to say that I'm so thankful we're so busy right now. And I say that because, you know, your, your professionals that you're seeking out, they, they really should work the same way with you. What's going on? Do you have a letter of intent? Do you have a purchase agreement in front of you? Do you have a CIM, what we call a confidential information memorandum or a presentation package? Has a broker put one together for you? Let me see what you have first. Let me review it. Then let's have a conversation. Then I'll tell you if I can help, if we can step in and help you out, save you some money, create some better protection for you and and help you out down the road. So. Sure. Well, good stuff. Well, I appreciate you sharing. Well, thanks so much for the time and, and the wisdom, the insight and everything. So it was great to have you on the show. And um, all the everything that you mentioned here, um, we'll make sure once when, when we post this, we'll have all the links to any supporting information that, that we talked about. We'll make sure that all that's provided underneath it. So appreciate you. And I'm going to... Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 